I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but there's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myoa. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. Think back to when you were a kid, maybe eight, nine, ten years old. What were your favorite games? Who were your best friends? How far were you able to go by yourself, and who watched over you when your parents weren't home? When we asked our neighborhood historians these questions, they painted a picture of the Central District that was expansive and safe. Those are the kind of stories that we'll hear about on this episode, what it was like to grow up in the CD. So my name is Marie Kide, and I was born in Seattle, Washington. Born and raised, my parents are Ugandan immigrants, and so I am their first American-born child. I don't know, back then the CD was just a lot different. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. So the ability to have somewhere to play or to do things at was, it felt limitless. The first place we lived was up near SU, actually across the street from SU on um, Jefferson. So a lot of times we would go play in the park across the street, which is now this vast, beautiful play field. But back then it was just like dirt (laughs) that was enclosed with a fence, but we loved it. It was huge, it was open. Um, My mom played a little bit of soccer, so we would be outside with a ball. Um, It was nice because we started to, you know, really create our own community. Um, So by that time we were able to to go see other parts of the Central District with our friends and they would take us to you know, different corners. And as we got older, we eventually moved into the Madrona area when I was in high school. So we'd always walk down to the park, uh, Devil's Ditch, um, Madrona Playfield, um, Madison Valley. We were really adventurous by the time we got up into that area because by then we were going to Meany and we were walking to school. We'd walk downtown, we'd walk to the Torchlight Parade. You know, that was nothing. It'd be like 20 of us walking downtown. Um, Maybe because we were more of a closer-knit community, um, there was always someone's house you could stop at on the way. So if you needed to be yelled at by somebody and your mom knew where you were going or caught wind of where you were going, there was somebody who knew you when you were en route to wherever you were going who could holler out their car window or out their house window to tell you to go home or whatever. Sometimes we didn't even have to go very far. We could just go out our front door. You know, at that time, it was such a community. Your neighbors, their children were the kids you went to school with. So all you needed was a bike. And, and some energy and you were gone. So we might just be riding up and down Union or 
riding across 23rd over to Madison or whatever. So yeah, so long as we were home before it was dark. Yeah, the freedom, there was just, you were in your neighborhood. <laughs> you know, you were, there was no fear to walk around the neighborhood. My name is Stephen David Sneed, actually. I go by Steve Sneed. I grew up here in the CD, yeah. born in the CD, <laughs> literally. So, you know, you walked everywhere. We walked to Garfield for practice, track practice. I would walk to all my baseball games. You know, I walked to Garfield, walked to the Arboretum. Yeah, so that, you know, riding my bike, I used to love to ride my bike all over the neighborhood. And I'd meet my friend down here at the corner of Jackson and Martin Luther King Empire at the time. And there were three gas stations there, so we would meet there and put air in our tires if we needed to. Then we'd go on and ride wherever we were going to ride, you know, just you'd ride all over the place. There wasn't even a sense that we had freedom. That's just what you did. A lot of people talked about the freedom that they had as kids to run around the neighborhood and go on adventures. It's kind of hard to imagine kids today having the same liberties or even the same desire to explore in the same way. Maybe kids' interests have changed, but it's interesting to think about how the changes in the neighborhood have impacted what children can and can't do anymore. Zola Mumford talks about how a stable economy allowed grown-ups to be more present in the community and provide a safe place for kids to be kids. One of the reasons the CD could be as good as it was is because people had stable jobs. If you didn't work at Boeing, then you worked for the city or the school district, or there was some kind of, not certainty, but a feeling that you could hang on to it long enough to have some consistency in your life so that you could feel like it was your community, I guess I would say. I grew up with people who went overseas to World War II, came back, and no, they couldn't get a job anywhere else but the post office because they were black, but even there, they were still engaged. You know, they're going out, and, and I'm thinking of Rudolph Hill, who um, went to St. Clement's Church. He um, ran a Boy Scout troop, youth group at the church. He would come to every community meeting. He'd show up there. He would be, and he'd be organizing something. Worked as a mail sorter for many years, but was an incredibly busy person outside the job. And I'm wondering if our modern workplace lets you do that. Everything was right there in our community. My name is Gary Robert Hammond. I was born in Seattle. My mother and father were both from Dallas, Texas. My father had the idea that it was time to move his family from under the Jim Crow and bring them to the Pacific Northwest. He made sure that he got his family to freedom. Even like when we were kids, there was a movie theater over there. There was always plenty of places we could go and, and play. I remember um, Mr. Edwards was one of the most important people, along with John Little, along with Charles Huey, Barry Carter. Those were all important people because they, they made things possible for young kids. I mean, they had jobs for us when I was... 14, 15 years old, 
John Little and Barry Carter and all the guys I called, they didn't let me run the street. They'd get me and say, you're working. I got something for you to do. Every summer, I had something to do. One of the reasons these stories are important is because they counter a lot of the narratives that exist about the Central District, that it was blighted, that it was ghetto, or that it was unsafe. These are stories about middle-class families living in a thriving neighborhood economy with enough free time to create programs for the youth in their neighborhood, and where kids felt completely safe. It's important because this is the neighborhood that wasn't supposed to thrive. The neighborhood where housing discrimination, job discrimination, and bank discrimination were status quo. But for kids growing up in the CD, at least the ones we heard from, life was a blast. Yeah, like this hilarious story from Phyllis Yasutaki about scoring a free banana split. Mr. Uh, Gideon's drugstore and pharmacy, and he had a big uh, soda fountain shop. Most of the soda fountain shops were drugstores. And he had a big soda fountain shop, great. Made the best banana splits in the whole world. I got one free once. For what? Well, I was waiting for doc- my auntie who worked for Dr. Joyner, and I went down to the drugstore with just enough for a six cent soda, but I really, really wanted a banana split, but I didn't have the money, and I didn't dare ask my auntie for it. So I went down to get my soda when I really wanted a banana split, and when I walked in the door, Mr. Gideon said to me, I'll give you whatever you want if you just don't tell anybody what you saw. I looked around, and I didn't see anything unusual. You know, I wanted that banana split, and I said, sure. I hopped up on the stool, and I kept looking, trying to figure out what it is I'm not supposed to tell, because I don't want to tell. <laughs> and what if he grills me about it? What if he asks me? <laughs> I went on, and he got the banana split. It was great. It had all the syrup, the che- maraschino cherry, everything. And he said, if you tell anybody you saw me without my teeth, I was like... I hadn't noticed. I noticed he sounded funny, but I didn't know teeth came out. <laughs> so <laughs> he could have gone the whole day and never said a word to me, and I would have never noticed. Because my got the banana split. True that. <laughs> but I was grateful that he at least told me what it was I wasn't supposed to tell. But I figure since he's passed away for about 20 years now, I can say it. <laughs> For many of us, we can remember the adults that were part of our community and left an imprint on us as we were growing up. In this next story, Daryl and Bruce Lockhart talk about their childhood hangout, the Boys Club, which is now the Boys and Girls Club. The Boys Club was such a the, a pillar of, this, of the community as far as somewhere to go when you're out of school. And I'm telling you, that's where we hung out. And we weren't allowed basically to go anywhere else. We did, of course, but... That's where we hung out at the boys' club. And then I remember Mr. Gully. Mr. Gully, black gentleman, six foot two, ex-army sergeant, and he did not play. Let me tell you a story. We're smoking in the back of the boys' club. I was too chicken to inhale, so I'm puffing away. And Robert said, man, you're not doing it right. This is how you do it. And he's just, that's how you do it. And I'm like, "Ah, I can't do that. I'm just... So we're in the back of the boys' club outside. Somebody must have smelled it or told Mr. Gully. So I take a little puff, and as I walk 
out into the open area. There's Mr. Gully standing in the stairway, and the smoke comes out. <laughs> Gully says, Lockhart, come here. I go, oh, man, who else is with you? Robert. Shine, get over here. <laughs> so we're standing there. Are you smoking? Mm-mm. Are you smoking? Mm-mm. Lockhart, you smell Shine's breath. Do you smell smoke? No. Shine, you smell Lockhart's breath. Do you smell smoke? No. Give me a hundred push-ups. Now, he's yelling so loud, half the boys club is there, standing around looking to see who's getting beat up this day. Okay? And so Gully says, Johnson, you watch Lockhart. Make sure he do them push-ups. This big kid goes, oh, man, he didn't want to be there to watch this little skinny, bony kid do 100 push-ups. And I'm going, one, two. So he's standing there like, one, two, 25, 48, 99, 100. All right. <laughs> I did three, I think, all together. Why can't you do your push-ups? Um, did he do his push-ups? Yeah, Mr. Gully, he did it. Okay. Never forget that. The people that stood out for me in the neighborhood who did that, who fostered my just upbringing other than my dad was people like Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell was the metal shop teacher at Washington. Black man, uh, again, he took me out to the, me and a couple other guys to the University of Washington to see their foundry and how they did. Because I love casting, which is kind of an artistic thing, but you'd make metal things like ashtrays, you know, simple. But he took a liking to me and uh, he showed me a lot. There was also the bus monitor when we were bussed out. Tall black man. I think he was retired as I think back. But he always wore a long black trench coat, black slacks, black shoes, black hat to monitor the bus, the kids on the bus. He was dressed clean. I, I think he had a tie on too. I'm sure he did with that outfit. But I remember he said something about me being a leader or something. And I was saying like, what is he talking about? I'm in fourth, fifth or sixth grade, right? I never, never forgot he said that because I didn't view myself as a leader. I wasn't loud. I wasn't, you know, an attention getter. And I guess I thought of that as being a leader at that time. Then there was Mr. Lee, Robert Lee. Robert Lee was my baseball coach. And so he coached me from my team from 13 years old all the way to high school because he also was the math teacher at Garfield and the coach, baseball coach at Garfield. So when I came from playing, you know, in the, the little league and I came to Garfield High School at ninth grade, he was right there. My name is Sky. I'm 19 years old. I grew up on 22nd and Jackson. A lot of people around the neighborhood like just tried to keep me on the right path. Mr. Marcus at Madrona or um, anyone from the CAYA here where I played football and things like that. Um, even my barber, Frank, he, he, they all just make sure I'm doing okay and just make sure I'm just on the right path. Coach Chris, my first ever Little League football coach. Uh, coach T, those were kind of like my other dads. <laughs> when I was at football practice, like positive male role models, the owners of Parnells, like the, the, the just people, we've been going there for so long, just places we've been going for years and years. We know everyone there. So just 
everyone that's ever worked at Red Apple over the years. The Flowers for You shop, I got my, my prom corsage there because she's known me since I was a kid. I feel like without that, I honestly don't know where I would be. Those people were so influential in my life. My name's Gregory Antoine Scott. I was born in Oceanside, California. So our family moved from South Central Los Angeles to 17th and Yesler. My grandfather had a two-story walk-up on 17th and Yesler. Seven years old when we moved here in 1966. My father was also a, a civil rights activist and um, labor organizer. And I remember that we would get the tires on our cars cut, the windows knocked out. Uh, there were Molotov cocktail bombs found on the side of our house because of the labor organizing that my father was doing. So yeah, I remember that vividly, you know. So that was in the early 60s. And um, when we moved here, there was a community center on 17th going towards that Langston Hughes Cultural Arts Center. All we played basketball, baseball, and then I remember when they built the Mecca River Pool and this East Madison YMCA pool, my grandfather was one of the founding members, but I remember there was no swimming facilities, you know, up until then. And another fond memory I have, my family was the first family to have a color TV. This is like 1967. Bonanza in color. The Fugitives in color. Yeah, that was something else. That's when TVs had these big vacuum tubes in the back, you know. You had to turn the TV on and let it warm up before your program came on. So when that 6 o'clock news came on, you better have the TV on at 5.57. And then my mother would say, no watching TV while she was gone to work. So we would put... Um, a piece of plastic on top of the TV, a wet towel with ice, and watch TV, and then take it off when she came home. Because the first thing my mom did when she came home was put her hand on top of the TV to see if he's watching it. <laughs> and you know, if you think about it, if that water would have dripped in the back of that TV and hit one of those picture tubes, the party would have been over. <laughs> when I was a kid, there were parades and floats, and I felt proud because that was a part of my community. You know, I seen the parades in Fremont on the news, the Veterans Parade downtown and the Seafair Parade, but there was a black community festival and a black community parade. I loved it, you know? There was a time when I felt uncomfortable in my skin. That parade made me feel like I was a part of this community, you know? I lived in a black community and I was proud of it and I came into myself then, you know? According to these stories, there were formal institutions in the neighborhood that gave kids structure and support. But there were also informal support networks of family and neighbors. Nowadays, it feels like neighbors are quick to jump on social media when they see something they think is quote-unquote suspicious in the neighborhood. But there was a time when kids knew everyone was watching, and neighbors knew whose parents to call if someone misbehaved. That's how K.L. Shannon remembers her childhood visits to Yesler Terrace. Everybody adored uh, my grandmother. She was, she was really funny, and she was the one that really, like, held everyone together. A lot of times, we all would end up over at her house. And if you've been to Yesler Terrace, it's, like a, it's really like a playground for kids. You know, we would run all over Yesler Terrace, and we would go up to Harborview and make faces at the security guards and they would run us out of the out of the hospital so it was always fun to go to grandma's house because it was safe you know it was very much a, a community i think everybody watched out for everybody's kids you know when you hear the stories about if you did something your mom 
was probably going to know about it before you got home. And that's that's true. That is so true. That is so true. It is so true. It's such a true statement. Uh, my name is Vivian Phillips. I was born in Seattle, Washington. So I grew up right here, literally. It was, I don't know, it was home. I had a cousin and an aunt that lived on 23rd where Monica's Village is right now. I had an aunt and a cousin that lived on, right off of 19th and Washington where Pratt is now. Um, another aunt that lived on 20th and Alder. Um, my aunt and uncle bought their first house on 22nd and Columbia. I could go from one place to the other very easily and see my cousins and hang out with my aunts. My godmother, uh, Fioma Bailey, lived in the biggest house on 26th Avenue right off of, right between King Street and Lane Street. She had eight kids. That was my second home. So those eight kids were all like brothers and sisters to me. And sometimes if I got in, if I was caught doing something that I wasn't supposed to do, one of them would rectify it. But it was, you know, I don't feel like there was much room to do the wrong thing. Um, walking home from Coleman School, I passed by you know, all of the homes of people that knew my mom and dad. Um, I knew all of the people of all of the businesses all along Jackson Street. And so I was always in the view of an elder. And it was safe. My name is Mark Edwin Cook. I was born here in Seattle, about 1936. Eight kids in the family. Father died really early when I was about four years old, so she raised us, kept us together, all the way through high school, et cetera, to our adult life, pretty much. We made our own entertainment. We'd look for the empty pet milk and carnation cans and stomp on them, and it fit, and we'd walk up and down the streets. We'd drive them. the adults crazy and tell us, get off those cans, you know. But that was one of the things we did. We made scooter busters. Scooter busters was a two by four and a roller skate. And the sidewalks was our, our playgrounds, you know. The streets were our playgrounds. There weren't that many cars. The neighbors were a lot of immigrant families. These Norwegians, Swedes, Jews, the Irish. A Jewish woman used to always call the kids up to her house to give us spinach cakes. I hated spinach, but I loved those spinach cakes. And... The adults in the neighborhood knew all the kids. Being when when you everybody played together, so everybody learned to know whose child belonged to who, and they'd look out for us and holler at us. And if they could catch us, swat us on the butt when we were running by, you know, doing something wrong. We had some friends, Filipino and white, who lived in housing projects behind us, and a shortcut was come up, open our back door, and walk through and go out the front door. Okay, that was common, and. uh we might have a, a relative visiting or something like that. They'd just sit there and watch these kids just walk through the house. You know, it's just cool. Nobody'd say anything. To start off, there wasn't very many locked doors. Locked doors came later on. 
my name is Aretha Basu. I was born in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and I grew up here in Seattle from the age of five. Um, I grew up here in the CD. You know, like all the moms used to feed all the kids, but it was really funny because my dad would try to cook and he was not a good cook. And so he would like make dishes for like all the different moms because they took care of me and like none of the moms liked the food and everyone was too embarrassed to tell him. So like everyone had like packets of Tupperware my dad's food just didn't know what to do with it. Um, my dad, when he moved here, um, this was the only place he could afford. He moved into the apartment I moved into because he wanted me to learn Spanish. And he was like, it's imperative to me that you understand, you know it. And so like I grew up speaking Spanish because all my friends were Mexican. And I was the only Indian kid. He really appreciated our community, even though like he didn't speak a lick of Spanish. He's like, the people here, I trust them. I know that if anything were to happen to me, they would step in and like they'd take care of you. They did. The day my dad died, like the whole apartment, like were all in my house, like taking care of me and like helping me like talk to police officers and fire to like firefighters and things like that. He loved living here. These stories are pretty nostalgic, but as we've said in other episodes, this project is not just about longing for the past. Stories from the past give us ways of thinking about what's currently happening around us. There's something special about how people in the Central District were able to create a close-knit and caring community where people looked out for each other. What happens when a neighborhood loses its sense of community? Do neighbors feel less safe? Do kids enjoy less freedom? These are questions that we think about and hope you do too. Here's J.J. Jackson with the last word on growing up in the CD. I was adopted when I was three years old and raised on 21st and Spruce. I had a disease, a skin disease called Virgilago, which turned me from black to white. I didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know if I belonged with black people or I belonged with white people. Once I told my mother about it, she was like, well, you're special, so you're black. That's the bottom line. You're a Negro. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I felt right into that, you know, and I started hanging out with blacks. And so I was always straddling the line, you know. Uh, when I needed to be black, I was black. When I needed to be white, I was white. That's how I went. I thank God, first and foremost, that I was raised in the CD. It taught me a lot. You know, my parents taught me a lot. Taught me how to survive. I can make soup out of a rock, okay? I ain't got no money. I, I can't. I can make soup out of a rock. Daddy worked at Todd's Shipyard for 43 years, okay? When he got off work every Friday, he'd get paid every Friday then, you get a check. My daddy would come home and give the check to my mama. My mama would give him $20 to last him to the next Friday, and that's how I went. In order for me to have extra money, I used to go out and hustle because that's what it was all about. And what I mean by hustle at that time was mop the floors of the clubs, go to the grocery store that was in the neighborhood and say, you know, can I bag, can I do something? And that's how we survived. I thank God I was raised here. I wish it was as it was. When I got in trouble at school, when I got on my block, everybody on the block knew. Miss Campbell knew, Sister Gerald knew, everybody knew. 
If you didn't have something, you could tell your neighbor, I don't have groceries. Oh, I got a little extra money here. Let me go help you. Come on, go to the store with me and get what you want. Those were the good times. Those were the good times. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag ShelfLifePod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening. <laughs>